Anyway, welcome to Pacific City Church. My name is Chris Meekins, and today we're going to be talking about marriage. This is my lovely, love, lovely wife. This is my lovely wife, Nicole. And uh, Nicole and I have been married together for 14 years. Yes. 14 long, long years. And um, what we've learned is a few things here and there. And uh, today we're going to be kind of chatting with you about it. Um, so here's a little bit about Nicole. Uh, we met in college. Uh, she actually is, uh, she works for, she runs all the quality labs at Johnson and Johnson, Neutrogena here in LA. She's a scientist. She's a chemistry and biology double major paid for school by swimming, uh, all things that are English words, but I know nothing about, uh, and uh, she is wonderful, and she's here today. And we thought, man, what a great opportunity to talk together about marriage. Um, now, people, uh, I mentioned to people, other pastors and friends in my life, uh, that we were going to co-teach together. And the feedback I got was like, good luck, bro. How dare, <laughs> like, it's very hard to take on and do it together. But we're happy to be here together and give this a shot and share what we have on the subject. Yeah. And I, the funniest thing about being married to Chris for 14 years is he's funny, but like, he's funny all the time. Like he wakes up at 6am and he is funny. And I have just had such an awesome mm. time being married to him. That's so good. No, but seriously, what you see is what you get. And it's uh, been a pleasure to be married to him and have our family. So we're excited to talk Stop. about Ephesians five and see what we can do. If we can yeah. do this together. Stop. Don't stop. Keep going. All right. Well, we're here. So let's get started. Uh, again, if you're new here, we'd love to meet you in the courtyard afterwards. And also, uh, we're going to be doing next steps. And we'd love for you to meet up with uh, Patrick and learn more about how you can run a marathon. So, well, today we're going to start. Today, we're in the third week of a series called Relationship Goals. And uh, today, we're going to talk about the meaning of marriage. Now, there's a lot of great jokes about marriage. And we're going to share some of those with you today. Uh, here's one from Rita Rudner. She says, I love being married. It's so great to find that one special person you want to annoy for the rest of your life. And one of my favorite comedians said, before you marry a person, you should make them use a computer with slow internet to see who they really are. Will Ferrell. That's Will Ferrell. Uh, Henny Youngman, uh, which I'm sure all of you know on a first name basis. <laughs> Uh, he says, Sometime, some people ask the secret of our long marriage. We take time to go to a restaurant two times a week, a little candlelight dinner, soft music and dancing. She goes Tuesdays, I go Fridays. Yeah. And Rita Rudner also said, men who have pierced ears are better prepared for marriage. They've experienced pain and bought jewelry. That's good. Now, no, there's more positive sides to marriage. Uh, but before we get to that, there's Albert Einstein who said, men marry women hoping that... Men marry women with the hope that they will never change. Women marry men with the hope that they will change. Invariably, they are both disappointed. And Eddie Cantor said, marriage is an attempt to solve problems together, which you didn't even know you had when you were on your own. There you go. And then the, the, obviously there's more positive views of marriage. Winston Churchill uh, once said, my most brilliant achievement was my ability to be able to persuade my wife to marry me. Oh, oh, how sweet. <laughs> and the Protestant reformer Martin Luther said, let the wife make the husband glad to come home and let him make her sorry to see him leave. And then Mignon McLaughlin said, uh, a successful marriage requires falling in love many times, always to the same person. That's right. Yeah. So today we are going to explore 
the longest sustained discussion on marriage. It's found in Ephesians 5. It was written by the Apostle Paul. And it's a very important discussion. This discussion is important for married couples. What does the Bible say about marriage? What is the meaning of marriage? And also, this discussion is important to anyone who intends to be married. Anyone who's planning to get married, or maybe one day, if everything should fall into place, and you're at the right place at the right time, and you meet someone, and it all works out, and you get married. It's important for you, as a Jesus follower, to know what the meaning of marriage is. Also, if you don't plan on getting married, or you're not married... Invariably, you will have to run into these people called married people. And so you should know what the meaning of marriage is, not just so that you can advise them, but what you will see is that marriage is a picture of what Jesus wants to do with us and what Jesus wants to do with this church. So we're going to open this discussion. We're going to share together. Uh, But before we do, I'm going to invite God's presence and pray for us. Uh, God, we come before you. Um... And we welcome you here. There have been, for some of us, there have been some trying times this week. And for some of us, we're on cloud nine. And I ask God that you would be with us, that you would teach us by the power of your Holy Spirit. That you would guide us, help us to speak as we should. God, I ask that you would show us what marriage is meant to be. And that you would lead us in this discussion. God, I pray for favor on our message and healing. Uh, for some people here today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So we're going to start by opening up, and I'm going to read Ephesians 5, 18 through 33. So do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, excuse me, psalms, hymns, and the song of the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body for which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stains or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body. But they fed and cared for their body, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his mother and father and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Okay, so we're going to begin by talking about the structure of marriage. Now, on your way in, you should have received something. You can take notes, but you can follow along on the screen as well. The structure of marriage. Now, in marriage, uh, in America, it's a little crazy right now. We have people who are unhappy in their marriages. We have people that are getting divorced. Our divorce rates are really high. There's people that are just dissatisfied with marriage. And some people don't even know what it's really for. And there's some people, younger people, and what we're seeing in this, I read recently read a New York Times article about this, that what people are getting married older, or they're even asking the more profound question, why bother? Why 
why get married in the first place? And so people have different points of view on why marriage is in the state that it's in today. Now, conservative Christians, or Christians that would be more evangelically conservative, they believe that marriage is in a sorry state simply because we have too many unsubmissive wives. Now, we've got too many women who are too pushy or opinionated, too many women who are trying to wear the pants in the relationship. And so certain groups of conservative Christians would hold that what we need to do is get back to a Christian perspective on marriage. There are millions of Christian women who have been beaten over the head by Ephesians 5 by men saying that their wives need to submit to their husbands. And many conservative Christians in this camp say that this text gives the husband permission to rule over his wife and his wife needs to submit to him simply because of his gender. Now, sure, he should be nice, he should be generous, he should take into account information and good points that the wife may bring to him, but ultimately, when the rubber hits the road, the husband is the final decision maker, and the wife needs to submit and respect and honor that. Yeah, and there's obviously a number of problems with this view of marriage, but we're going to talk about two of them today. The first one is that this text doesn't go where we expect it to go. Um, the real problem with Ephesians 5, 21 through 33 is that the text doesn't go where we think it ought to go when we read the words head and submit. Let me explain. In ancient world, there was philosophical writings. There was something called household codes. And these household codes established the duties within a household. Husband to wife, wife to husband, children to parents, parents to children, even masters to slaves and slaves to masters. And most of these codes held that a good husband should be like a benevolent dictator. They should rule and govern their homes, but with warmth and love. However, the husband ultimately rules. Now, the Apostle Paul is writing to people in the ancient world. So he's using the models of of these philosophers. He's using similar words, the head and the word submit. But he doesn't actually say the same thing as the ancient philosophers. He says something very different. When Paul explains what is meant by the head and submit, he never uses the, the word rule. He uses the word love. And three times in this text, he commands the husbands to love your wives. Never defines headship as ruling or govern or be the boss or the king of the castle. Paul describes headship as the duty to love. Nice. Uh, no, that's one problem. Uh, The second problem is this. Uh, The text doesn't include the word submit, actually, in verse 22. Look at, uh, this is kind of funny how I have to do this, but we'll explain it. In uh, Ephesians 5, verse 22, it says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. Now, um, I'm going to try to explain what this actually means, but I need crowd participation. Somebody yell out, what is your favorite uh, TV show? What is this? Yeah, that's good. Hilarious. That's a good one. Yeah, so someone yell out. Tell us, tell me, what is your favorite TV show? Sandy, so good. Walking Dead. Cool. Give me another one that I might know better. What the, The Office? Bojack Horseman. Like you and Patrick know that. Uh, yeah, it's a good one. Um, so I heard The Office. Any other ones? Give me some more of your favorites. I need to know. This is good. Seinfeld. Seinfeld. Oh, cool. cool. That's a good one. Uh, let's use The Office. Like, so if you're watching The Office... 
and your friend comes in and has never seen the office and they start asking questions about Pam. Like, why is Pam like looking at Jim that way? You're going to be like, you just need to sit and watch the show a little bit and understand. In fact, you should probably go back to the start of the show. You shouldn't be picking up in season six. You don't know what you're talking about. Like just slow your roll, Pam and Jim forever. All right. You would kind of get them to like, just chill out because when someone comes in and has a lot of opinions about what it should be in the middle of the show, then they really don't understand the context and it really ruins it for me. Let me give you another illustration and then I'll tie this into what we're talking about. Now I'm going to tell you, I'm going to share to you the importance of a comma. Okay. So look at this first slide. It says in this first slide, I like cooking dogs and kids. That's wonderful. Yes. I like to make, I like to make, I like to make, uh, you know, uh, cheeseburgers and dogs are cool. You know, uh, what kind of dog do you have? Well, it was a beautiful dog. And then I like kids. Kids are wonderful. Uh, especially when I get to pat them on the head and send them away. Cause they're not mine, it, but I like cooking dogs and kids. It's not the same as I like cooking dogs and kids. <coughs> do you see how commas are important here? In one situation, well, you don't. Okay, so in one situation, you talk about what you like. In the other situation, we have to put you in jail. Commas are very important. Understanding context is essential. And it's the same thing happening in Ephesians chapter 5. What we see here is we run into the same risk if we read verse 22 without including verse 21. Sometimes people, generally in the conservative Christian camp, We'll read verse 22 by itself and not consider any of the context around it. And when we do this, we fail to apply basic contextual reading skills. And what we see is that verse 22 is contingent upon verse 21. They should literally be read together and the text should literally read like this. It should read submitting to one another in reverence for Christ. Wives to your husbands as to the Lord. Verse 22 does not start a new thought. It's contingent and it's connected to verse 21. Paul is calling spouses to mutually submit to one another. Wives to husbands and husbands to wives. And this is not just here. This is why when Nicole read the text, she started in verse 18. She started in verse 18 because that is the greater context of what's actually happening. And what does it say in verse 18? It says this. It says, do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. So just a real quick pause here. When Paul says, be filled with the spirit, you will see that if you're filled with the spirit, you're going to see at least three things happen in your life. The first is you're going to love to worship God. You're going to want to worship God. The second thing that you're going to see in your life is that you're going to be saying thank you to God a lot. You're going to be grateful. You're going to have this new profound thankfulness and gratefulness to God. And then the third thing you're going to see in your life is you're going to start being mutually submissive to one another. You're going to start to practice mutual submission, not just within spousal relationships, but with each other. And all these things, verses leading up to verse 21, end up leading to verse 21, which is submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, mutual submission in this time, When Paul wrote this about 2,000 years ago, this was absolutely unknown in the first century outside of Christianity. 
What Paul is doing here is when he's saying submit to one another is it is completely radical. It is completely revolutionary. He is literally writing down and standing up and then spitting in the face of the Greco-Roman world. The Greco-Roman world was built on old rules, hierarchy, and submission. In order to have an ordered society, there needed to be one group of people that made another group of people submit. Power was the way you controlled and made society happen. Now... Uh, There's one writer who actually has compared this Greco-Roman world and found similarities between it and the Jim Crow South when there was racism and slavery. And this writer said this, the Greco-Roman world, it was similar to the expression of what is often heard among those who wanted to preserve the status quo during the civil rights struggle. If people, quote unquote, knew their place and stayed in their place, we would not have such social turmoil and dislocation. Sadly, this is what a lot of conservative Christians say that wives should do and should be. In this marriage, you're getting too uppity. In this marriage, you're getting out of your place. You're speaking out of turn. You just need to learn to be submissive. And that way we can have order in this marriage. And that will have a cascading effect on the rest of society. And Paul comes in and blows up this whole power structure. And he's not saying that at all. He's saying, wives submit to husbands. Husbands submit to wives. We need to be mutually submissive to one another. You and me are going to speak to you on working through this basic framework. And this is what Paul is saying. He wants to work through the basic framework of the Greco-Roman world. But he's saying, let's define those relationships in terms of mutual understanding and mutual respect and mutual regard and mutual love. Yeah. And and we've been married for 14 years, like Chris said earlier. And this is how we've modeled our relationship. Um, We make the authority, we have the authority together. We make the decisions for tough relationships tough decisions together, whether that's where we buy our house, what we do with our house when we move to Santa Monica, where Marin goes to school, um, where we purchase our cars, what kind of car we purchase, all these big life decisions we do together. And what we found out is that we don't always agree. As you know, Chris and I are both very opinionated, strong people, and we both think that we're right most of the time. Most of the time, I'm right. But... Well, I found that it's, if I just say my argument one more time and speak a little more slowly, this time she's going to get it. And then if I just say it a little louder, then he'll understand me. No, but we know the neighbors (laughs) it's, it's tough. You know, it's tough sometimes because we do see things differently. But one thing we see together is we make these bigger decisions always together and we've, now that we've talked about the structure of marriage, let's talk about the purpose of marriage. Paul sets marriage up as to be a kind of a gymnasium where we can train to become the best versions of ourselves. And how do we do that? In this text, Paul says that marriage is designed to teach us to love. Paul emphasizes that each of us has a responsibility to love the other person. And notice that Paul doesn't focus on what you need to do for your partner to love you. He focuses on you, what you need to do, how to train to become a person that loves well. You see, love is not a natural thing. Lust is natural. Romance is natural. Desire is natural. But mutual love, described in Ephesians 5, is not so natural. It must be trained into us. It's something we must practice and get better at. 
And God doesn't ask people to love generally. He asks us in marriage that we love the person we're committed to specifically. So Paul goes on and he doesn't keep this definition of love high and lofty. Like a rom-com or a greeting card, Paul shows us how to love specifically. In the possible Paul defines love this way. He says in Ephesians 5:25, "Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her." And what does it mean to give up your life, to practice self-sacrifice? That's a tough question. I'm going to give you just like a tiny example of one way Chris does for our family every every day actually. I get up around 5:15, 5:30 and I head to the gym. And this is not a fun time usually for your spouse to leave. And so rather than Chris continuing to sleep or start work or just, you know, relax, he gets Marin up, he gets Marin ready for school. They have breakfast together. And you may think, well, that's not that big of a deal. But for me, a working mom, it's huge. It's huge for me to know that not only do I have that time to take care of myself, but also I know when I come home from the gym, the two of them are going to be laughing. They're going to be dancing. I can separate myself and I can give that precious time in the morning away because I know he's taking that time preciously and he's, he's making memories and building a relationship with Marin that's very special to them. So he, he's using that time to really show how he loves and cares, not just Marin, but also me. That's so good. Uh, so, friend, how can you have a loving relationship? How can you be as generous as I am in my marriage? It's not that good. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, when we, if you want to love the way Jesus loves um, in a marriage... The truth is we usually don't have to do like the really big thing. And that's what we've discovered in marriage. And we know this to be true. And as I explain this, you'll see this to be true either in your own marriage or in other marriages. Usually you don't get asked to jump in front of the speeding bullet, to take the bullet for a spouse. Usually you don't get asked uh, by God to run into the burning building and pull your spouse and their dog and some of uh, the more important jewelry out from the burning building and you're just carrying the spouse um, out of the building and the building crashes down behind you and you're like the hero of the day. You usually don't have to do the really big thing with your spouse. So you see, um, in almost every way, all marital sacrifice is contained in small incremental choices. Almost always, almost always. God never usually or never, or usually, I don't know which one. He usually doesn't ask us to write a check for a billion dollars to our spouse. He usually asks us to write 25 cent checks at a time. 25 cent check here. Hey, I'm going to do the dishes, even though I don't want to do the dishes. Hey, I'm going to, uh, I'm not going to pretend like I'm such a hard sleeper at three in the morning when my daughter wakes up, when the kids wake up, well, I'd get up and help with the kids at three, but I'm just such a hard sleeper. I can't, I can't hear. You get up, you help the kid, you go back to bed. You're, oh my gosh, I'm just such a heavy sleeper. No. Um, what you do, you, uh, you help pay the bills or you take the dog for a walk. Or sometimes like if there's a parent teacher conference or something, like the one spouse will go so the other can keep the work commitments. 25 cents here, 25 cents there, 25 cents there. Sometimes we have to bite our tongue 
when our spouse keeps complaining about the same thing over and over and over again. You bite your tongue, you bite your tongue and you hold it. It's 25 cents here, 25 cents there, 25 cents there. It's an incremental choice to care for your spouse. And so often giving to your spouse doesn't look like, hey, I'm going to give you one of my kidneys. It often looks like a little drop of blood here, a little drop of blood there, a little drop of blood there. Until she bleeds you dry. No, just kidding. No. I'm just kidding. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just playing. Just kidding. I'm just kidding. No. I'm just kidding. Here, hear me out. Hear me out. It's a little pinprick. It hurts. It hurts. But the way sacrifice and marriage generally works is a little bit here, a little bit there. Yeah. Paul also defines marriage as um, practicing the great commandment. So we see in Ephesians 33, however, 533, however, each one of you must also love his wife with all his himself and the wife must respect her husband. You know, Jesus once said, you shall love the Lord with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind and all your strength. This is the first and greatest of the commandments. But he goes on and he says that the second commandment is you shall love your neighbor as yourself. If you and I were to take this commandment seriously, like how would we practically do it? If you stop and think about it, loving your neighbor as yourself is really hard. It feels almost impossible. And you see, marriage teaches us how to do this, how to model the second great commandment, unlike anywhere else in the world. Anyone who has been in a long-term relationship or even a long-term friendship knows that the people closest to us are the hardest people to love the day in, the day out of life. And, you know, sometimes in my marriage, I don't always want to do what Chris does. I don't want to watch football, like ever. Like 99% of the time, I do not want to watch football. And, you know, in more seriousness, <laughs> I watch a lot of football. Um, uh, more serious, sometimes, <laughs> stop. Uh, sometimes I don't want to connect with Chris. I don't want to have a difficult conversation or hear about a tough day. I want to relax or I want to go for a walk on the beach. I want to do something for me. And the thing is, is what we found is that we both need to make the effort to put each other first. And we both need to make the effort to check ourselves and, and really, <clears throat> excuse me, and really understand that sometimes that means that I, I stay and I engage and I have the tough conversation. And sometimes it means Chris recommends a really good podcast for me to go on my walk, but it's a constant balance and a constant communication of what the other person needs at that time. And marriage is a rare commitment. Um, It's the rarest of commitment on earth, actually, where we get to practice the great commandments in in this world, in our life, in real time. And marriage is, is really God's gym. It's God's ways to train us and to teach us to love more like him. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, the purpose of the marriage is uh, one is to teach us to love. And then we talk about self-sacrifice and self-commitment. Uh, oh, no, not self-commitment. Practicing the great commandment. Um, and then it's also there. One of the other purposes is to teach us holiness. Uh, look what it says in verse 526. It says this. It says, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word. Now, there's a quote by a guy named Gary Thomas, and he wrote this interesting book called Sacred Marriage. And basically, he poses this question. He says, what if God designed marriage to make us holy more than to make us happy? Interesting question. And what we find is that Gary Thomas is actually pretty right. Marriage forces us 
to face our personal character issues that we would never face if we were on our own. Now, I'm going to give you an illustration. Now, if you're single and you come home to your apartment and you want to do, you can do literally do whatever you want. You, could, you want to be a slob, you, go, you can be a slob. If you want to sulk, you can totally sulk. If you want to sit down to a half gallon of Rocky Road and watch Netflix, you can do that all night and no one's going to check on you. Full, you can just a do A full that. gallon. A full gallon. A full gallon. Sure. Full gallon of Rocky Road and all the Netflix you can handle and you want to to complain in your own mind. You can do that and you can wear sweatpants and take out your contacts and wear your glasses and you can do all that. It's different when you're married. Why is it different? Well, if you come home, it's not that it's just the two invisible eyes of God watching you. There's another person like you're going to watch Netflix all night. You're going to eat all the Rocky Road by yourself? (laughs) What if I wanted to connect with you? What do you mean you're watching old reruns of Friends? Just kidding. That would never happen in our house because it's a terrible show. (laughs) There's two types of people in the world, Friends and Seinfeld. And Friends is my generation's version of the Big Bang Theory. It's terrible. So anyway. (laughs) It's a... The purpose of marriage, if you think the purpose of the point is, is you have these extra eyes on you and those eyes lead to accountability. They lead to accountability in ways that you never expected and never saw coming. So if you are planning on getting married because you think it will make you happy, here's my advice. You need to get remarried every every two or three years because marriage is not necessarily always built for happiness. Marriage, when you get serious about it, it forces you to deal with the issues that are in you. The issues that are in you, your pettiness, impatience, your selfishness. Sometimes we can be so self-consumed. And when you are living with someone, it helps you to work that out. And it helps you to become more holy, not necessarily always more happy. Hopefully you get both, but it's definitely for your holiness. Yeah. And let's read this this text again and hear your your responsibility in it. In Ephesians 5.25, it says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. And gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to, the, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stains or wrinkles or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. This means that husbands and husbands to be, you have a lot of responsibilities to your wife. You have to help her become more beautiful inside than she was the day you met her. You have to make sure she is encouraging her to be more spiritually mature. She's more secure. She's emotionally healthy. And you're not supposed to participate in a lifestyle that beats her down or causes her to be self-conscious or unsure of her faith or unsure of her place in your marriage. And let me speak to the wives and the wives-to-be. You have the responsibility to help your husband. They need to become more holy and more secure and full of integrity and more in love with God. And spouses to spouses, spouses and spouses to be, it's your responsibility to promote each other's spiritual health and spiritual well-being, your holiness. And people who foster an environment of respect and prayer and encouragement and attentiveness, even when they like friends, um, they have healthier marriages, period. And marriage really is God's gym. It's God's training ground to teach us how to be holy.
Yes. Okay. And then this is the final point. And then we're going to pray and close today. But finally, this is the last thing we want you to see, is that the purpose of marriage is to point beyond itself to Christ and to the church. Now, throughout the text, Paul, the apostle, the writer of this text, he keeps drawing the analogy between husbands and wives and Christ and the church. And there's so much in this text that's about that pointer. But I just want to look for a moment at the closing, uh, what it says in verse 31 and 32. It says, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united with his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. Paul sees marriage as this wonderful picture that's meant to represent the union of Christ and his church. And what we're talking about here is the faithfulness of God. God is faithful to his people. God is faithful and he sticks with us through the thick and the thin. There is a foreverness to God's love and faithfulness. He is faithful, just like we would see or hope to see in a committed marriage relationship. What Paul is saying here, you can also find him saying in other parts of the Bible. In 1 Corinthians 13, it's often referred to the love chapter as the love chapter. He tells us that love never fails. Love never collapses. It's never defeated. It's never destroyed. It never falls apart. And everything else in this world will pass away. Our bodies will decay, our beauty will decay, our careers will go away, our ministries will go away, but one thing will still remain. It is the love and the faithfulness of Jesus Christ to his people. And so there's many people in the world that don't believe that. In fact, there are many Christians who don't believe that. They don't really believe that God is faithful beyond anything else in this world. And so we look at Christian marriage and we look at it as an example and a pointer that we can shout from the rooftops that we serve a faithful God. That God, what he has done through Jesus Christ is he's made a way for us to be in relationship with him, but not just so that we get into heaven, but he's faithful and enduring in all the different ways in our lives that he wants to draw near to us, that we don't have to do this life alone. We can do it together with him. And so what we want you to see, married people, is we want your marriage to reflect this faithfulness to each other as you see the same kind of faithfulness between Christ and his church. And single people, some of you will not stay single. Yeah, you're going to get married. And when you do, our prayer would be that your marriage would become something that is a pointer to the faithfulness of Jesus, that people would look at you, both married and soon to be married or eventually married people, people would look at your marriage and go, there's something faithful in there and I just can't figure out what it is. And you know what it is? It's the faithfulness of God that you're representing. And that would be the thing that would rise up in your marriage and in your life. That it would be more than just two people falling in love and making out every once in a while. It would be something deeper and more profound. Something that was weaved in to the very fabric of our world from the very start. Marriage is something that is from God for us to honor what Jesus is doing in the world. Do you believe that? 
Do you believe that marriages can be restored? Do you believe that your marriage, no matter where it is today, can actually be healthier than it is today? And if you don't have a marriage, do you believe that one day, if you do, that it can be something that would point to the mystery and love and faithfulness of God? I believe that for you. We believe that for you. And we know it can be true. Amen? Why don't we all stand?